Mark 5:21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the women, woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the, sab when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, jo Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. May God bless the reading of his word.
Thanks, Emily. And thanks, Ted, Spencer, Tina, and Helen uh, for leading us this morning uh, before God. So we're now in week seven of our sermon series on Mark that we've been calling Follow Me. Through the last two months, we've explored who Jesus is, the nature of the kingdom of God, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus. Most recently, two weeks ago, Pastor David preached a sermon in which he talked about our calling to have faith in Jesus, to have faith in a Jesus who calms the storms, to have faith in a Jesus who can cast out demons, to have faith in a Jesus who can overcome both natural and supernatural obstacles. And today we're going to dig a little bit more into this idea of journeying by faith. For those of you who've been Christians for a while, you know that we're saved by God's grace through faith alone and not by works. But what does this look like practically on a day-to-day basis? How does faith actually influence or affect our lives? When I was growing up, I was taught that to be saved, to be a Christian, to go to heaven, all you had to do was pray the sinner's prayer. You know the one, the one that goes, Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. I believe that you died and you rose from the dead. And I ask for your forgiveness. And what I was told growing up was that all you would have to do is pray this prayer and you had assurance of salvation. It didn't matter how you lived your life going forward from there. As long as you prayed that prayer, you could know that you were getting into heaven. Of course, I was told, God wants you to live morally. God wants you to live righteously because he wants you to have his peace. He wants you to have his joy while you're living. But those things weren't, you know, really part of the equation when it came to salvation. Is this what the journey of faith looks like? Or consider a LifeWay survey that was taken a little less than a year ago. This survey was of American Christians And what this survey found was that 38%, more than a third of American Christians, agreed with this statement. My church teaches that if I give more money to my church and charities, God will bless me in return. And 69% of people in that survey, more than two-thirds, agreed with this statement. God wants me to prosper financially. Is this what the journey of faith looks like? That if we give, you know, give our part, if we do a little bit for God, that God will smooth out our path, that God will smooth out the way of life, that we'll be able to live uh, comfortably uh, until our death. Well, as we dig into our passage today, we're going to explore some of these questions. We're going to explore what faith is, what faith is based on, what the journey of faith looks like. We'll explore some of the challenges that that come up when it comes to faith some of the obstacles that we can expect as we journey in faith. And what we'll find is that our faith is built on Jesus' authority, an authority that invites us to follow him and to persevere by faith. So as we dig into our passage and we see how Mark describes faith through these stories, it's interesting that Mark first uses two people 
that are unlikely to be seen as paradigms of faith? What can we learn from Jairus, the synagogue ruler? And what can we learn from this anonymous woman suffering from bleeding? Well, the story is set up in the structure of a Markin sandwich. If you missed the sermon from, I think it was about a month ago, when Pastor Jeff was preaching, he described what a Markin sandwich was. See, Mark has this tendency to start off a story and then interrupt it with another story and then finish it off, go back to the first story and finish that first story off. And Mark does this sandwich-type structure to emphasize something theologically or rhetorically, to try to make a a point even more clear or or to, to really pull out what he's trying to say. And in this case, he's focusing on the idea of faith, of belief. And so we start off with the bread, with Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Now, Jairus as a synagogue ruler wasn't, probably wasn't a teacher of the law. He probably wasn't you know, a trained rabbi. Most synagogues at that time were organized and run by lay leaders. And so Jairus you know, wouldn't be someone like you know, Pastor David right now, a professional clergy member. He was probably someone more like Lauren. Uh, a lay member who also happened to help organize activities and, and run the, the stuff, worship services and things at church or at the synagogue. And so Jairus, in that role, even though he wasn't a rabbi, probably was still highly respected in his community, still had a lot of influence. And as the synagogue ruler, he probably also had some sympathies with the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the ones who were trying to keep Israel going and being faithful to Jewish law. These same Pharisees that you see in Mark and the rest of the Gospels is often clashing with Jesus. And so it's really surprising that Jairus, in his moment of desperation, in the moment when he feels like he has nowhere else to turn because his daughter is on death's door, he comes, it's surprising that it's to Jesus that he turns. And so we see Jairus coming to Jesus, throwing himself at Jesus' feet, begging, urging, pleading with Jesus to please come with him because he needs him. He needs someone to come with him. He needs Jesus to come with him to his household to lay his hands upon his daughter so that his daughter can be healed. He's desperate. His precious, precious 12-year-old daughter is about to die and he feels like he has nowhere else to turn. Now, it's at this point in time, Mark interjects with the meat of the sandwich. And he interjects by bringing the story of this bleeding woman. A woman who's just as desperate as Jairus, if not even more desperate. Because you see, she's been suffering. She's been suffering for 12 long years. She's been suffering with chronic, constant bleeding. With the physical pain of that bleeding. With the emotional and mental anguish of constantly feeling that, that pain and, and not knowing what to do with it. I mean, if you can imagine suffering with a physical ailment for 12 long years, what that does to your psyche. She's desperate too. She's gone to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor. And none of them have been able to help her. They, actually, they haven't even, not, they, it's not even that they haven't been able to help her. Every time she sees one of these doctors, her condition gets worse and worse. And so she's suffering physically. She's suffering mentally. And she's broke. She's poor. 
because everything that she had has been spent on these doctors that haven't been able to help her. She is desperately before Jesus. And not only is she suffering physically, not only is she poor, she's also a social pariah. Because just like the leper back in chapter 1 that we talked about uh, a month ago, the woman also, according to Old Testament law, is unclean. In Leviticus chapter 15, we read, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. Any bed she lies on will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches them, meaning her or the, or the bed or anything she sits on, anyone who touches them will be unclean. And so this woman is a social outcast too, in addition to her suffering, in addition to her poverty. You know, when you look at Jairus and when you look at this woman, they might as well be on complete opposite sides of the social spectrum. And Mark emphasizes this even more because Jairus is given a name. We know Jairus' name. Whereas the woman is left completely anonymous. This woman is desperate. This woman needs help. And so she turns to Jesus. She, and she turns to Jesus in, in, in a strange way because, because of her social status, she has no expectations that Jesus will actually listen to her. Whereas Jairus might say, well, because of who I am, Jesus likely will at least pay attention to me. The woman has no expectations that Jesus would even look upon her. And yet, the woman has heard of Jesus' authority in his teaching. The woman has heard Jesus' authority in the ways in which he's performed miracles. And the woman believes in Jesus. The woman believes that Jesus' authority is divine. I mean, the woman probably hasn't seen or heard enough to actually believe that he's the son of God. But the woman has heard enough to know that Jesus has been sent from God. That the authority that Jesus had is God's authority. And so the woman starts to think to herself, because of Jesus' authority, if I just go, and if I could just somehow touch the fringe of his clothes, because of the authority in Jesus, I can be healed. She's really nervous, because she doesn't know what the consequences, what other consequences there might be for approaching Jesus, for her, an unclean woman, to try to touch Jesus. But she keeps telling herself, you know, if I just touch Jesus' clothes, if I just touch Jesus' clothes, I can be healed. And so in the story, she starts to inch her way over to Jesus. I mean, picture, picture the scene. It's immensely crowded. I don't know if you've ever been on a train in Japan but during rush hour, but something like that, right, where everyone's pressed up against each other as Jesus and Jairus are slowly moving away. And so in the midst of this crowd, she's slowly inching forward. Because of who she is, people might be annoyed at her as she shoves around, but people don't really give her much of a second glance because she's an outcast. And eventually, she gets within arm's length of Jesus. And she reaches out and just brushes, barely brushes against and touches Jesus' clothes. And immediately, she's healed. She can feel it in her body. She knows how much she suffered for 12 years. And she knows that all her suffering, all her pain, all her ceremonial uncleanliness is gone because of Jesus' authority. 
But the story doesn't end there. Because Jesus, knowing that the woman has touched him, turns around and says, who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? And the woman starts to fear, feel this fear. Because what is Jesus going to do when he finds out that she, an unclean woman, has touched him and ritually defiled him? Or what might Jairus think when Jairus finds out that she, this unclean, anonymous, nobody woman, has delayed Jesus from getting to his daughter? And she starts to think, well, maybe I can just slip away. I mean, you know, no one saw me sneak up on Jesus. It's so crowded here. I can probably just inch my way away and slip away and no one will be the wiser. And so maybe she starts thinking, that's what I'll do. I'll just slip away because, you know, I, I don't want to create any trouble and I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, what might happen to me if they catch me. But then she remembers who it is that's calling her. It's Jesus. Jesus, the one who has all authority. Jesus, who calmed the storms. Jesus, who's healed the lame and the sick. Jesus, who's cast out demons. Jesus, who has authority over everything. And so she has no choice. Her faith in Jesus' authority demands that she respond. And so she throws herself down at Jesus' feet, just like Jairus did before, and tells Jesus everything. Because you see, faith acknowledges and submits to Jesus' authority. Because the woman acknowledged Jesus' authority, that's what caused her to, to feel at want to reach out and touch Jesus' clothes to begin with. Because the woman submitted to Jesus' authority, this is what has driven her to respond, even though it probably would have been easier just to slip away. It's not these actions which have saved her. Because as Jesus later says to her, she, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's her faith which has saved her. It's her faith which has cured her. It's her faith which has given her an identity. Because she was this anonymous social outcast. And now she's someone who Jesus calls daughter. Her faith has made her well and brought her into relationship with Jesus. And yet, faith still compels her to action. Because faith isn't just an intellectual thing, right? Faith isn't just something that we believe in our mind and doesn't affect anything else. Faith, is, faith and belief and trust are something that compel us to action, that predispose us to action. If you heard the meteorologist say one morning that it was going to rain that day, if you had faith in that forecast, you wouldn't walk out the door as if it was going to be sunny. You'd bring a raincoat or an umbrella because of your faith in that forecast. Or if as you're driving home and you see on Google Maps that there's an accident ahead and Google Maps wants to reroute you a different way, if you have faith in Google Maps, you'll allow yourself to be rerouted. In the same way, faith, even though we're saved by grace through faith, our faith compels us towards action. Our faith causes us to act. <clears throat> and our faith challenges us. 
in terms of what we might place above Jesus' authority, what we haven't yet submitted to his authority. Maybe it's education. Maybe it's our desires for Harvard or MIT. What would you do? How would you feel if God told you that he didn't want you to go to the school that you had set your hearts on? How would that affect you? Or maybe it's our retirement savings. How would you feel if tomorrow the stock market crashed and all your savings were wiped out? Would you still feel the same security that you feel today because of your faith in Jesus? Maybe our faith, maybe our hearts are set on uh, what we want out of a significant other in a dating relationship. Or maybe it's what we want out of our jobs. Or maybe our hearts are set on our aspirations for our children. What would it look like if all of these things were submitted to Jesus' authority? It's not that these things are bad. I mean, God calls us to be faithful to our jobs. God calls us to be faithful to our spouses. God calls us to be faithful to our children. But how would these things look? How would our lives look? How would our attitudes look? Our actions look? If we submitted first to Jesus' authority? How would it look if we let go of our control? Because we knew that Jesus, who has all authority, is in control. Faith acknowledges and submits to Jesus' authority. But even as we learn, even as we grow in faith, even as we learn learn more what it means to submit to Jesus' authority, we face adversity, we face struggles, we face trials. And we see some of these as we continue in our story. As we come back to the bread, As we come back to Jairus, we see one of these uh, challenges that faces him. Jairus has been standing by this whole time, right? And you're you're probably, I was probably wondering what he was thinking, right? I mean, as he observes Jesus' interaction with this woman, is he inspired? Is he encouraged by it? Is he encouraged that, wow, Jesus really can heal? And maybe because of this, Jesus really will be able to help my daughter. Or maybe he's standing by thinking, you know, if he had a watch back then, looking at his watch going, you know, time's running out. I mean, my daughter's about to die. What if, what if my daughter passes away while he's talking to this woman? Well, then, as all this is happening, his worst fears come true. Some people from his household come, and they come with him with the news that his daughter actually has passed away. And the time it's taken him to run to Jesus, and the time that it's taken for, um, <clears throat> for, for Jesus to be interacting with this woman, his daughter has passed away. How much grief must be filling his heart? How much fear must be facing, must, must, he must be facing as he's suddenly face to face with the prospect of life without his precious, precious daughter. But Jesus hears all this and he turns to Jairus. And he says to Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe, only trust in me. And something in Jairus' heart changes, just the slightest glimmer of hope. Because he's seen how this woman has responded in faith to Jesus and what happened with her. And he remembers Jesus' authority, his authority over all things. And remembering this authority, gives him this hope 
that somehow in the midst of this huge tragedy, in the midst of everything going wrong, that somehow Jesus might be able to make everything right. That somehow Jesus might be able to fix everything that's wrong. He doesn't know how that's going to happen. <coughs> but he trusts somehow that Jesus might do this. And so Jesus and Jairus start walking to his house. And when they get there, there's a huge commotion with tons of people wailing and weeping. Now, some of these might have been professional mourners, as was the custom at the time, but there certainly were family members there too. And Jesus sees these people and says to them, why are you weeping? The child is only asleep. And these people look at Jesus and they start laughing at him, which is kind of strange, right? Because, you know, they've probably heard just as much as the woman did, just as much as Jairus did. They've heard about Jesus' authority and his teaching. They've heard about Jesus' miracles. They've heard that Jesus is able to heal. Jesus is able to cast out demons. And yet, their hearts are hard. They refuse to believe that Jesus is able to do anything in this situation. And so they laugh at Jesus. But Jairus doesn't join them. Jairus holds on to the hope of what he knows about Jesus. Because Jairus knows that in his faith in Jesus, that Jesus has the ability to do something. And so he clings to that authority, his, his knowledge of that authority, as he faces this struggle, as he faces this trial. And so Jairus, Jesus, and some others go up to the little girl's room. The girl's lying there on the bed with her eyes closed, completely still. You can, there's something about the air that you know that she's dead. And Jesus walks over and he sits down next to the girl. He reaches out. He gently picks up the girl's hand. And he says, little girl, wake up. And immediately, the girl gets up. Everyone is completely amazed. You can imagine the range of emotions Jairus is feeling where he's just lost his daughter. And now his daughter has been raised from the dead. And Mark talks about how they've been overcome with amazement, everyone who is there. Because you see, Jairus' example helps us to understand what it means to persevere in faith. To know that there will be challenges to our faith and that we must persevere. There will be tragedies. There will be struggles. There will be obstacles in our life. Things that we don't expect things that completely feel like they're overwhelming us. And God may not resolve those challenges in the ways in which we want. If we've lost a loved one, we probably won't see them again in this lifetime. Things may not be totally harmonious again because we live in a broken world still. And yet, we still believe in Jesus' authority. We still believe that Jesus has authority over all things. And so we cling to the hope that somehow, in some way, Jesus will make everything right in the end. And that hope is what enables us to persevere in, in faith. That hope that Jairus had. Jairus didn't necessarily know that Jesus was going to raise his daughter from the dead. 
But Jairus did know that Jesus could. Jairus did know that even if Jesus didn't, somehow, because of Jesus' authority, everything would be okay in some way, shape, or form in the end. But it's challenging. It can be hard to persist in faith. And when we take a look at the next story, we see that again, because Jesus goes to Nazareth, and as was his custom, he goes to the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue, and he starts teaching, he starts preaching. And the people in Nazareth, the people that you know, saw him grow up, are amazed by Jesus' teaching. And they start asking, how did Jesus get such wisdom? How did Jesus get such authority to teach like this? I mean, we saw him grow up. We saw him trained not as a rabbi, but as a carpenter. We know his brothers and sisters. And we know there's actually something a little odd about him because we call him the son of Mary. We call him the son of Mary because we know that he was born out of wedlock. We don't call him the son of Joseph as is typically the custom. And so all these things that they know about Jesus' past, about him being born out of wedlock, about him being trained as a carpenter, about the normalness of the rest of his family, become a stumbling block. And they can't believe in Jesus. This, this wall in their head, in their hearts, prevents them from belief. And, you know, it's kind of understandable that our preconceived notions can prevent us from faith. Our preconceived biases and our proclivities can, can be a challenge when it comes to faith. While I've been at seminary, I've had the chance to, to read uh, various arguments and various writings from so-called liberal scholars. And some of these arguments can be pretty compelling. Arguments that you know, Moses wasn't really the one to write the first five books of the Bible, that the Exodus never really happened, that the Bible was written much later than you know, we traditionally believe because that's the way to explain how the prophecies got fulfilled. Um, and how sophisticated the Bible is. And I'll admit, you know, my faith, my faith started to waver a little bit in reading all these arguments, because these scholars write with such certainty that these things are true. And yet, God still calls us to persevere in faith. And he calls us to persevere, not with a blind faith, not with the faith that goes, you know, nah, 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 I'm, gonna keep, I'm just going to keep believing what I believe. He calls us to persevere by trusting in him as we dig into things, as we confront these questions. In faith, we can boldly confront our questions and trust that because of what we know about Jesus' authority over all things, that in the end, Jesus will be vindicated. And as I dug into things a little bit more, as I read a little bit more, as I heard a little bit more, I realized there's not a lot of data, archaeological or otherwise, from 2,000 to 3,500 years ago. And so, because there's not a lot of data, it's really hard for these scholars really to have this much certainty in what they believe. This data just as easily says one thing as it says another thing. And it's these scholars' preconceived biases that the supernatural is impossible that God, that, that, that God works in supernatural ways, the impossibility of that, the bias that that's not something that can happen, that causes them to interpret the data the way that they do, that little data that exists. And so the encouragement that we see from the story in Nazareth is that while our preconceived notions can cause us, can become a stumbling block to believe, can become a stumbling block for our coworkers our classmates to believe. 
that we're called to persist. We're called to dig into those questions, not to turn a blind eye to them, but we're called to do this knowing that Jesus has all authority and that as we dig, Jesus will prove himself over and over and over again as our Lord. So, as we reflect on this story, there's one more thing about Jesus' authority and faith that's curious, which is that, you know, as Jesus is touched by the woman, as Jesus reaches out and touches the girl, why doesn't Jesus become unclean? Because that's what the Old Testament law says. He's tainted. Why doesn't he become ritually unclean? We know that God is an all-powerful God, holy and righteous. And so how can God come to earth as Jesus and engage with us as sinners and not become unclean? How can God engage with us as sinners and not wipe us all out because he can tolerate no sin? He can tolerate no shame. He can tolerate no evil. Well, this story alludes to the answer to this question, too. Because what we find in this story is that Jesus' authority is ultimately shown and proved out at the cross. Because, you see, it's on the cross where Jesus suffered just as the woman suffered. It's on the cross where Jesus was afflicted just as the woman was afflicted. It's on the cross where Jesus bled just as the woman bled. And it's on the cross where Jesus died just as the woman died, or just as Jairus' daughter died. And so the irony is that on the cross, the symbol of shame, the symbol of suffering, the symbol of public humiliation and pain, that it's on the cross where Jesus' authority was shown the most clearly because Jesus showed on the cross that he had the authority to take on the uncleanliness of the world. It's on the cross where he showed that, that it was his holiness that can infect Jesus's, uh, Jairus' daughter and the woman rather than their uncleanliness infecting him. It's on the cross where Jesus showed his authority most fully and enabling us, our uncleanliness, to be put on him so that we can be seen as clean and be in relationship with God. And so we're left with this challenge. We're saved by grace through faith alone and not by works. But faith impels us to action. Faith calls us to understand each and every day more and more what it means to submit to Jesus' authority. Faith calls us each day to think about what it is that we haven't submitted and to pray that by God's grace, he would enable us to submit those things to him. And faith calls us to persevere, that in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of stumbling blocks, in the midst of un things that we can't even imagine, faith calls us to persevere, that at the end of the day, we can draw closer to God in trust and that in his authority, God will make all things right because Jesus has shown that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the one who reigns over all. Let's pray.
God, we confess that we are weak in our faith, that distractions cause us to turn our eyes away from you, um, that as Peter walking on the water, um, when the waves rise up, we look down and we try to get in control of ourselves. And so, Father, we come to you and we ask that you would increase our faith, that you would turn our eyes on you, that you would show us um, that in the end, you are the only one who is worthy of our faith. You are the only one who can fulfill our faith. Give us the strength to trust in you, to live out that trust, and to persevere in that trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.